What's up, everybody? Pastor Matt here. Thank you so much for checking into the podcast of Gospel Fellowship PCA. Hey, listen, what if I told you that there is a solid, biblical, doctrinally faithful, reformed church on a beautiful campus just a stone's throw north of Pittsburgh? Yeah, we don't have a Starbucks in the lobby. Sorry about that. We don't have a fog machine. We don't have an American Idol stage with laser lights shooting all around. But we do have the sweetest, kindest people in the world. We sing the Psalms and classic hymns of the faith. We preach the Bible chapter by chapter. We believe the whole thing's true. We love Jesus. We're on a mission to share the good news of the gospel with the world. Would you be interested in a church like that? Well, come check us out, Gospel Fellowship PCA in Valencia, Pennsylvania. Please feel free to visit our website at gospelfellowshippca.org and subscribe to our YouTube channel, Gospel Fellowship Presbyterian Church. All right, thank you so much. Here's today's message. Um, we are going to have Dr. Jeff Stuyvesant come up in just a moment. Give me one more minute, Jeff, because we're actually going to give away a gift, our first gift tonight. Um, again, thanks to Cherry Hills Bibles who made these for us. And the first one we're going to give away is this Westminster Confession of Faith. It's a beautiful edition, um, wonderful goatskin cover, leather liner, amazing, amazing book right here. Um, and I'm going to give this to the person who drove the furthest to get to this conference. I think they deserve it. Don't you think that's fair? Like if they drove for hours and they probably deserve to win something. So did anybody drive three hours or more to get to the conference tonight? Raise your hand. Okay, I see several. I see several. Um, did anybody drive four hours to get here? Okay, a few were eliminated. Uh, did anybody... Dri- <laughs> David, you can't win it. You made it. <laughs> How many hours did you drive to get here, David? Like four and a half. Four and a half. Okay. That'd be nice if you just won it back. Then you wouldn't lose anything. <laughs> Did anybody drive four hours to get here? Four? Four and a half? Five hours? All right, this, this gentleman in the back. What's your name, sir? Tim. Tim. Do you want this? All right, come up and get it. <laughs> Thank you so much. How many, how many miles did you drive? Oh, I, I mean hundreds? Hundreds of miles. He drove hundreds of miles. Jeff, does that put any pressure on you for this lecture? <laughs> this guy drove hundreds of miles to hear you tonight, but I'm sure, I'm sure it's going to be fantastic. Uh, Dr. Jeff Stuyvesant is the professor of New Testament studies at RPTS. Again, the faculty there is just amazing. You are a true polymath, though, if I can brag about you for just a moment here. A polymath is a person who is skilled in multiple disciplines, and uh, Dr. Stuyvesant, you did your dissertation on, is it B.B. Warfield? Yeah, B.B. Warfield. But tonight, he's going to be talking about the great book, Pilgrim's Progress. He also teaches New Testament, and you are a skilled theologian as well. Uh, but he's a true polymath because in doing all of these things, writing and lecturing, he, he is also a local church pastor in Gibsonia at Grace Reformed Presbyterian Church uh, Grace RPCNA. And so I don't know how you do it, Jeff. It's truly amazing to see you uh, writing and teaching and preaching, leading the local church. So let's welcome up Jeff Stuyvesant to the pulpit tonight. I, uh, I feel like just asking Keith to come up and repeat what he's done. 
That way the guy that's been here five hours can get a <laughs> another good lecture. Well, uh, I want to thank uh, uh, Matt for having us. I appreciate the invitation. It's great to be here. Certainly thank your session and uh, thank you folks who are here. Uh, it's, uh, it is uh, it's wonderful to be here and um, kind of humbling to have a uh, look out and, and see you all. Um, I certainly expected for myself to see maybe three or four, so uh, it's uh, good to have you here. Um, well, I, uh, I have the fun lecture. Um, uh, I, I had to do something uh, after uh, Keith came up and gave the weird and uh, popular draw lecture. So I had to do the fun one, and uh, this is fun for me. I've really enjoyed Pilgrim's Progress over the years. So uh, what, I'm, uh, what I'm bringing to you now is something that I, I very much love. Uh, let, me, let me begin by addressing some housekeeping items before we get into the paper itself. Um, though there are many good editions of Pilgrim's Progress, and, and if you asked me, I would tell you to buy from the banner of truth. Um, but uh, uh, I would tell you to buy multiple books from the Banner of Truth. But anyway, I digress. Um, I'm using the Penguin Classic Edition of the Pilgrim's Progress, and I've done that for quite some time. And uh, to be more specific, there are a couple of different editions. I'm using the Roger Pooley edition. Uh, there was a, a Roger Sharrock edition, but I'm using the Roger Pooley edition uh, uh, and my reason for doing so um, is the same as that of Pulley himself. Pulley had, has published the last edition of the Pilgrim's Progress published in Bunyan's lifetime. Uh, the 10th edition of the first part and the second edition of the second part. And they were both then published in 1688, uh, the year Bunyan died. And uh, so second, my observations will only come from the first part of the Pilgrim's Progress. I realize there are, there are plenty of riches to be found in the second part. For example, if you espouse the importance of covenantal theology for understanding your family, then you'll require the second part of the progress. Uh, it's there, for instance, that Christiana, quote, had gotten admittance for herself and her boys end quote, at the wicket gate. Nevertheless, my, my own sense is that the second part tinkers with the first part, and the two are not necessarily seamless. And so my, my observation, and you'll see that um, in, in the first part of the paper, and so my observations are going to come from the first part. Um, I would also say this. Um, uh, when I say observations, uh, what this paper is, is it's a distillation of a, of a book I'm working on, on the Pilgrim's Progress. And so some of this comes from, uh, if not all of it, comes from that work. I've titled this paper Lessons from the Pilgrim's Progress, and you're likely wondering the obvious. Uh, what sort of lessons? Am I referring to the literary lessons which C.S. Lewis spoke of in his essay titled, quote, The Vision of John Bunyan? There, Lewis speaks quite positively of Bunyan's use of allegory, saying the tinker refused to, quote, allow the least confusion between the vehicle and its freight, end quote. Or maybe I, I'll disregard the literary lessons altogether and focus on the theology of the progress, since most critics, even C.S. Lewis himself, found that to be somewhat repellent. Uh, 
And it could be that the lessons are very pastoral in nature. After all, one prominent and present-day pastor theologian said that if our people would simply read the Pilgrim's Progress, they might need less counseling from us. Certainly, they would need counseling, but uh, they might need less. Uh, so what then is the, the nature of the lesson that I'm talking about? Well, the lessons that I have in mind are those that I've learned from reading this little treasure, this little treasure gifted to the church, and I've read it many times over many years. Every time I read The Pilgrim's Progress, I love it more, and, uh, and I love it because Bunyan ushers me into new regions of devotion, and he is always a guide through the winding avenues of my experience. And though the lessons will inevitably be of a literary, theological, and pastoral character, they are nonetheless lessons that I've learned from Bunyan's tale. Such an admission must be accompanied with a confession. I'm not a professor of literature, nor am I an expert in Bunyan studies. I am a reader who has read a distinctly Christian book with profit, and I have an interest in sharing the lessons that I've learned with you and with others so that they may be helped in the pilgrimage to the celestial city. And I'm confident that the progress will help anybody who takes it in hand to read it. Well, let me get to the lessons. Uh, there are five lessons, and you have a, a handout um, that you can follow along with me. And, and most of it uh, is going to be, uh, you're not going to need that handout, but you will need a visual at a couple of key points as we go through the progress. I'll point those out to you when we get there. I will say this, this first point that I'm going to deal with is going to be the most controversial point that we're going to encounter in tonight's lecture. Um, it's one that I find thrilling. I'm, I'm, I, um, I think that I have a good argument. Um, I'm willing to stand by it um, unless you can push it down. And if you can push it down, I wish you'd do that tonight. Uh, so I can change it. But uh, I'm pretty confident in, in where I stand with it, and so uh, uh, I hope uh, at least it makes you think. Um, so first, it's about the experience. Open the Pilgrim's Progress, and you are immediately confronted with a question. When did Christian experience saving faith? Perhaps the most popular answer is upon his entering the wicket gate. There are three or 10 or 20 uh, reasons. There are three reasons uh, for arguing this way, typically. Uh, first, there are those who argue that Bunyan embraced and taught the doctrine of preparation. This doctrine contends that the unregenerate can take steps in preparation for conversion. Consequently, all that we read prior to entering the wicket gate is nothing but God graciously overcoming obstacles of mind and conscience in our poor beleaguered pilgrim prior to his conversion. In other words, he is preparing for conversion. Second, that second argument comes from part two of the progress. In part one, the keeper of the gate is a man by the name of goodwill. However, when Christiana, Christian's wife, gains access to the gate, we discover that the keeper of the gate is no longer goodwill, but is now Christ himself. A third argument, and a seemingly airtight one, is that in the marginal notes of part two, 
Bunyan says that the gate is Christ. There are those, and I am among them, who believe that this is just one example, uh, these arguments, the last two, taken from part two of the Pilgrim's Progress. These are examples of the tinker tinkering with his own work and causing it to not be a seamless work. And, uh, and I have uh, uh, problems with, uh, with the, the, uh, the tinkering. Um, and so I'm going against the grain. Um, I would challenge the prevailing notion on the basis of a close reading of Pilgrim's Progress, Part 1. My contention is that a more consistent reading of the text is that Christian became a Christian the moment he fled from the city of destruction. And if Bunyan meant to teach otherwise, he failed in his task. There are several lines of argumentation that I want to give under this first point. It's about the experience. And so we're still in that first point talking about the experience. And now we're going to talk about the arguments for my going against the grain, my contention that Christian became a Christian the moment he fled uh, the city of destruction. The first and the most obvious, Christian's original name was not Christian, but graceless, we are told later in the tale. However, instead of calling our pilgrim graceless until he enters the wicket gate, Bunyan refers to graceless as Christian immediately after leaving the city of destruction. One certainly wonders why Bunyan would attach this moniker so early if he did not yet consider graceless to be full of grace. It's a simple observation, but one that has to be answered. Second, we can discern an understanding of sin, an apprehension of mercy, and an endeavoring to new obedience, which is the traditional formula of repentance, in Christian's departure from the city of destruction. For example, that Christian had come to understand the odious nature of his sin is clear when he's speaking to his wife. He told her that from reading the book in his hand, he was, quote, for certain informed, end quote, of his imminent, of his imminent destruction. But when speaking to pliable and obstinate, after his departure from the city of destruction, he said, quote, you dwell in the city of destruction, the place where I was born. I see it to be so, end quote. You see, the change is palpable. Cognition became conviction. Every man and woman and child who would come to Christ must learn this simple lesson, but not this lesson alone. Christian had also come to apprehend the mercy of God through the help of a pastor named Evangelist. Again, I want you to compare Christian's conversation with pliable and obstinate upon leaving the city. When Christian met these men, he did not tell them what he had told Evangelist. He had told Evangelist his fear of sinking, quote, lower than the grave, end quote. But pliable and obstinate caught up with Christian on his departure, and it was not fear for himself 
that he expressed, but fear for them. Fear that they, quote, would sink lower than the grave. No longer did he have that fear for himself. That fear was for pliable and obstinate. What he saw to be true of the city was no longer true of himself. He had set his heart upon new obedience and had set out to enjoy eternal and incorruptible inheritance that could only be found wherever that place was beyond the gate that he could barely see when evangelist pointed him toward it. Third, there is a decided change in Christian's vocabulary. I, I hope you see that, that the arguments are mounting in their intensity and, and to some degree their complexity, at least literarily speaking. Um, this third is a change in Christian's vocabulary. When we open the Pilgrim's Progress, we meet Pilgrim with a book in his hand. It's not just any old book. It's the Bible. But the references to the Bible in the opening pages are as striking as they are odd. For example, it's called, quote, a book in his hand, quote, the book, and again, quote, this book. What is so odd about those references? It's true that each mention puts the Bible's importance on full display, but the references feel somewhat distant. Notice once again, it's a book, the book, and this book. It is the book that communicates information to the pilgrim that he might be for certain informed about the end of the city of destruction. But what it offers Christian in knowledge, it lacks, at least at this point, in intimacy. Then Christian met evangelist, the preacher, and something changed. There is an adjustment in vocabulary regarding the book. For example, Christian identifies the book now as my book. Obstinate takes note of the intimacy between Christian and his book when he says, quote, away with your book, end quote. Again, a little later when Christian calls the Bible, quote, my book, Pliable asks, quote, and do you think that the words of your book are certainly true, end quote? Do you see the differences? When he's moping around in the city of destruction, it's a book, and the book and this book, but once he flees, now it's my book. And they, those men who flee the city of destruction in pursuit of him, recognize that it's his book. All of this prompts a question, why the change? Now that question is hard to answer in any detail, but there seems to be a clear connection between evangelist's gospel message and the difference in Christians' relationship to the Bible. No longer is, quote, the book a source of doomful information and the cause of burden. It's now a source of gospel hope for a man who was once graceless. Flight from disaster means running toward a kingdom of everlasting life, a place where, quote, there shall be no more crying nor sorrow, for he that is owner of the place will wipe all tears from our eyes, end quote, says Christian to Pliable. 
But this brings us into another, and this is a supplementary lesson under the third line of reasoning that I just gave. Christian reason, now this is wonderful stuff. Christian reason that if the words of this book are, quote, certainly true, then it was, quote, made by him who cannot lie. That's what this new fleeing Christian says, not even a mile from the city, within sight of the city of destruction so that pliable and obstinate could overtake him. Christian understood and embraced the fact that the trustworthy and true God is the primary author of this book, or should we say now, his book, which is most certainly true. If I can just take a minute to say what a simple and profound truth, and would that every Christian would reason so simply and yet so profoundly as Bunyan's pilgrim. The fourth line of evidence confronts us uh, the fourth line of evidence uh, confronts us in a, in, a, in a really in a most unlikely place. It's a little later in the book. It's when Christian met Apollyon in battle, that, that accursed fiend, which I hope there's a chapter or ten in this dissertation to read. Uh, and notice what Apollyon does when he meets Christian fully uh, in battle array. Notice what he does. Apollyon accuses Christian of having been unfaithful to the Lord of the hill, who is, of course, the Lord. Now, Christian is surprised by this. He interrogates Apollyon, the beast, and he is quick, Apollyon is quick to point up his failures, saying that Christian, now listen to this, Christian had almost choked in the slough, slew, slaw, whatever you want to say, <laughs> of despond. And he had given heed to Mr. Worldly Wise Man's counsel to climb Mount Sinai in order to seek relief from his burden. Now, what is most striking is that all of these instances cited by Apollyon are prior to Christians having entered the wicked gate. Now, if Christian was not a Christian prior to his entry into the gate, that is, if he was not a believer, then how could he be unfaithful to his new Lord of the hill? What is more, when Christian encountered Mr. Worldly Wise Man, it was prior to his entering the wicked gate. And when he described his burden to Mr. Worldly Wise Man as, quote, terrible, Bunyan makes this aside comment. It's, in, it's a marginal note. And here's exactly what it says. The frame of the heart of a young Christian. That's his commentary. That's Bunyan's commentary on Christian's experience. And more to the point, Bunyan's comment indicate that Christian is, in fact, a Christian facing youthful Christian experience at this point. And therefore, it seems clear from a close reading of the text that Bunyan understood Christian to be a believer prior to entering the gate. So how do we understand the placement of certain events in this story? 
In other, in other words, why is the gate where it is, and why, for instance, does the burden roll off his back where it does, and why is he clothed with righteousness when he is, and all of those things, those kinds of questions need to be answered. Well, I think the answer is that we have a tendency to read the Pilgrim's Progress looking for an ordo salutis when that's not what Bunyan was doing. Bunyan was not writing an ordo salutis. He wasn't writing a systematic theology text. In other words, we don't open it up and find what we might find so systematically put forward in a Lewis Burkhoff text. What Bunyan is writing about is Christian experience. He's not, and, and, and let me put it this way, he's writing as the omniscient narrator about a man's Christian experience. He's describing not what actually happens in terms of decree, but what happens in terms of experience. But there's another reason why things may be as there are, and more particularly, why the wicket gate is where it is. And I think in this next point, I'm going to give you a little bit of help in understanding how Bunyan thought about the wicket gate, what he thought about the wicket gate. When evangelists met with Bunyan on the slope of Sinai, that's an understatement, isn't it? He said to Christian, quote, the Lord says, this is evangelists, remember, saying to Christian on the slope of Sinai, this is right after worldly wise men, this is before the wicked gate, this is right after, this is after the slough of despond, this is, one, this is um, after he meets with worldly wise man and Mr. Worldly Wise Man tells him that on top of that mountain he can find relief for his burden. He's climbing that mountain and, um, and he feels the weight of it, he's deserted, evangelist comes and helps. And this is what Evangelist says to him. The Lord, quote, the Lord says, strive to enter in at the straight gate, the gate to which I send thee, for straight is the gate that leadeth unto life, and few there be that find it, end quote. From this little wicked gate, oh, I'm sorry, I'm still quoting from Evangelist. <laughs> From this little wicket gate, and from the way thereto, hath this wicked man turned thee, to the bringing of thee almost to destruction. Now, what do we find there? We find the wicket gate called the straight gate, and the straight gate called the wicket gate. And in fact, the quote about the straight gate is taken right from Luke 13, okay? Two years before Bunyan wrote The Pilgrim's Progress, he wrote another book called The Straight Gate, wherein he speaks of two gates or two doors. The first of the two doors is the door of faith, and this door is said to be Jesus Christ. However, says Bunyan, there's also a straight gate, Luke 13, 24, which does not prefigure Christ, but is the gate of heaven. If it is this gate, rather, that professing believers must strive to enter. Did you hear what I just said? 
It is this gate that professing believers must strive to enter. Now let me show you something. This is really fascinating. In a footnote in the straight gate, when he's unpacking this in the text, you drop down to the footnote and Bunyan says this. Now here's the footnote. Much confusion appears to exist in the mind of many in reference to the straight gate mentioned in the text in Luke 13. As this passage is frequently introduced into exhortations to the unconverted, it is addressed to professors of religion, to those who profess to have set out for the celestial city and seems to say, beware of the form of godliness without its power, of the profession without the possession. Did you hear what he said? This text, the straight gate, is not for unbelievers. It's not for the unconverted. The straight gate, says Bunyan, is an encouragement to Christians to persevere and to strive to enter the celestial gates. And so thus it seems that in the first part of the progress, the wicked gate is not the door of salvation, but the abiding exhortation to every believer to press on in pursuit of the celestial city. We might put it this way, because this is an exhortation to believers, this one found in Luke 13:24, Bunyan might have placed his wicked gate or his straight gate at any place along the path or at every place along the path because it's an exhortation to Christian and every other Christian pilgrim to keep on keeping on. Well, I'm glad we're done with the controversial point. Whew, got that out of the way. Um, let's, uh, let's move on to the second. The dangers along the way. After Christian's burden... And here's where you'll need your, uh, your, it's Roman numeral three, but your second point. Just keep that handy. It's a nice visual. After Christian's burden rolled away and he was given the robe, the scroll, and the mark on his forehead, he met with two different groups that can easily be classified. He met with some antinomians named Simple, Sloth, and Presumption, but he also met with some legalists named Formalist and Hypocrisy. Both groups meet their end. The antinomians simply fell off to sleep, and near the hill of difficulty, the legalists stumbled and fell and rose no more, and were heard from no more. However, Bunyan does, does not simply leave these groups behind, as it were. He uses them to teach us a lesson. Bunyan describes Christians' ascent of the hill of difficulty as, quote, he fell from running to going, and from going to clambering upon his hands and knees. Then midway up the hill of difficulty, Christian found an arbor wherein to rest. Here Christian began to admire the coat and the scroll which had been given to him. With these things, he pleased himself and then fell asleep. The parallel is striking. Bunyan seems to be drawing us back to the antinomians and the legalists of the previous section, and you see that in a chiasm, in a chiasm uh, formula. Notice I have A, B, B, A. That's the chiasm, the inverted order of the A, B. So you have A, the antinomians fell asleep, 
B, the legalist stumbled and fell and rose no more. B, prime, Christian fell from running to going and from going to clambering. And then A, Christian fell asleep. And so it seems to be that um, Bunyan is drawing down on what we learned about the antinomian and the legalist to expose us to the dangers that the Christian may face. Though antinomians like sloth and legalists like hypocrisy do meet their end, Christians face the same sort of temptations and sometimes do stumble. Sometimes their faith does falter, but not fail. And so that's what Bunyan is teaching us here. Christian looks very similar to both the antinomians and the legalists. But here's the lesson to be learned. Partial apostasy can only be differentiated from full apostasy by repentance and faith that arise from a transformed life. That is the very thing that we see in Christian's life. And therefore, vigilance is crucial to the Christian life. Bunyan helps us to see this when Christians summon the antinomians to rouse from their slumber, lest he who goes about like a roaring lion might come and devour them. Christian had indeed roused in the arbor, remember. However, sleeping had its consequences. For when he met with what? The lions. He discovered that sleeping had had deprived him of his assurance. You see, Bunyan is teaching us the lesson of the straight straight gate. We must always be striving to enter. Third, the pilgrim's progress is not a one-size-fits-all story. Um, I remember uh, the first few times that I read the pilgrim's progress, I did think of it as a one-size-fits-all story. Of course, this story is more about Christian than anyone else, but other characters are introduced along the way. Two primary characters are faithful and hopeful, each one a companion of Christian. Now, it's not hard to see the differences between characters like Christian and Mr. Worldly Wise Man. In fact, we expect those differences. But prior to opening the Pilgrim's Progress, a question forms in our mind as the reader. Has Bunyan crafted Christian to be a prototype of every believer? In other words, should every Christian life look like the one that Christian lived? Put differently, is the Christian life, from the progress's perspective, one-dimensional? The answer is decidedly no. Though all of the Christian characters share the same point of departure, that is, the city of destruction, and they all walk the same path, and they all arrive at the same destination, the celestial city, They do not necessarily share the same experience. Some get an apple and some get a bag and so on. You see the differences. Perhaps the key example makes its appearance at the end of part one. On the bank of the river separating Christian and hopeful from the celestial city, they asked the shining ones who stood by, quote, if the waters were all of a depth, end quote. The men responded, no, quote, you shall find it deeper or shallower as you believe in the king of the palace, end quote. Thus, upon entering the water, Christian began to sink while hopeful was able to touch bottom. 
However, we find another example of this point with rich application just after Christian met his first traveling companion. When Christian departed from the house called Beautiful, he asked the porter if any other pilgrims had passed by. One had not stopped at the house, but did pass by it. When Christian asked Faithful if he had not seen the house called Beautiful, Faithful replied that he had, but, quote, because I had so much of the day before me, I passed by the porter and came down the hill, end quote. As part of their discussion, Christian discovered that Faithful had encountered temptations that he himself had not experienced. For example, unlike Christian, Faithful had to battle with the temptation of lust. When Faithful met Wanton, he fell for her flattering tongue. Unlike Joseph, who left his coat in her hand when he fled, Faithful seems to have left something of himself behind, saying, quote, I know not where I did wholly escape her or no, end quote. Moreover, as Faithful went on, he came to the hill of difficulty, and there he met with Adam the first, in whom all men are fallen, who offered him his three daughters in marriage, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life. Here again, we read that Faithful was, quote, inclined to go with the man, resulting in the appearance of Moses, who gave him a terrible beating. Surely Bunyan is not inclined to skirt the realities of sin, and so we meet with Faithful and his seemingly very modern challenges. However, this story is not only about the reality of sin, but the reality of the gospel. Let me point out two important lessons at this juncture. First, a Christian is not defined by his sin. This man is called faithful, despite his ongoing struggle with the particular sort of sin that we just mentioned, the lust of the flesh. This is not an excuse, it's a reality. This is a lesson we must learn. Too often we define ourselves by the sins we commit or the lifestyle with which we struggle. However, the gospel reminds us that sin does not define us so. Our relationship to Christ defines us. Second, sins, even besetting sins, are not more powerful than the gospel. Now, it's one thing to assert such a thing, but something else to prove it. But I would have you notice at least two things in this text that speak to this particular point. First, faithful continues to move forward along the path. He, like Christian, has his struggles, but forward movement is the deciding factor. But the second point is even more telling. After leaving the house called Beautiful, believers encounter two valleys. The second valley, the valley of the shadow of death, was a place only navigable on a narrow path with mire on the one side and a ditch on the other. The quag was the moral mire into which, quote, David did fall, end quote, with Bathsheba, you remember. And the same filth Christian found difficult to avoid in the valley. Here, Bunyan is speaking of the temptation of lust. This was faithful's besetting sin and apparently it had snagged Christian as well. However, when Christian questioned Faithful about his experience in the valleys, Faithful responds this way. This is so good. Listen to it. Quote, for I had 
sunshine all the rest of the way through that and also through the valley of the shadow of death. In other words, faithful seems to have walked through the valley of the shadow of death with the moral quagmire into which David once fell on the one side and the moral ditch on the other, and he had sunshine, whereas Christian had darkness. Oh man, that's rich. And Bunyan is telling us something. Bunyan is saying, he's reminding his readers that the gospel exercises transformational power over the life of the Christian. God is good. Here is elsewhere, Bunyan instructs us that often the differences in our Christian experience has more to do with, well, our experience. For example, one might go up the hill of difficulty and pass by the sleeping lions outside of the house called beautiful with relative ease while another may lose his assurance and terrible as, and tremble at the lions despite their chains. The lesson Bunyan is teaching us is the one we learn from the interpreter's house. Christ is always throwing oil on the fire of our faith while the evil one is attempting to extinguish that same fire. Thus, we must continually set our eyes upon him who has given us the oil of the Spirit and so cry out, Lord, increase our faith. The path is the same, but our experience is different. Christ is the same, but our faith is stronger or weaker. We possess every benefit in Christ, but our sense of what we possess is stronger or weaker based on our faith. I'm going to ask our moderator. I've, I've reached 8.30 at this point. Uh, keep going. All right. It's not my fault. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to try to... That's a great point. Yeah. This is for you, 500-mile guy. Okay. All right. Fourth. The journey takes a pastor. I'm so glad you didn't stop me before this point. <laughs> do you remember, do you remember that there was hanging in the house of the interpreter a portrait of a peculiar, he is a peculiar man, and a particular man? Think of his description. He is one of a thousand who can beget children whose eyes are lifted to heaven. The world is at his back. The best book is in his hand. Truth is on his lips, and a future reward belongs to him. Who is this man? He's a pastor, and he is crucial for the Christian's progress. In fact, according to the interpreter, the pastor is the only man that the Lord has authorized to be Christian's guide. Uh, we Presbyterians might say a session, uh, um, just, but, but it, I, I'm working with the book. <laughs> now, this portrait is not the first time we and we've encountered a pastor in this story, nor will it be the last. In other words, various pastors have appeared in the portrait, and, uh, and the portrait helps us to interpret the men we see throughout the story and recognize them as pastors. Let me give you an example of what I'm talking about. Look again at the portrait. The portrait tells us that the pastor is a very, what, grave man, a very grave man. Now, think about some of the characters that we meet along the way. Goodwill. The keeper at the wicket gate is depicted as a grave person. Also, consider how evangelist was de described. He has a, quote, severe and dreadful countenance. He's a grave man. 
And when evangelist helped Christian back to the way, remember this, he gave him but one smile. Even a grave man can give one smile. These grave-looking men are the men in the portrait. They are pastors. Now, there's another related lesson that we learn in the house called Beautiful, and this is, uh, this is a wonderful lesson. For, for Bunyan, the lions that block the way into the house or the church are the civil and ecclesiastical persecution. Both would have us avoid God's beautiful house. Bunyan had experienced his fair share of trouble from both institutions. However, attention rests not on the lions, but on Christian's entrance into the house. Here, we see a tightly woven section that leaves us thinking that this is anything but a simple story haphazardly told. For example, notice that Watchful and his companions, in his companion discretion, guard the entrance to the house. Obviously, the porter is the pastor, but who is discretion? Whoever she is, Bunyan would have us note at least one crucial point. She bears a striking resemblance to the portrait of the pastor hanging in the interpreter's house and the house to which she belongs, for she is at once grave and beautiful. Perhaps we are to see the simple truth, like pastor, like people. What is perhaps most unique about Christian's encounter with, por- with the porter is the interview that precedes entrance into the house. There, a certain chiastic pattern is found. And you- you'll be helped to look at uh, Roman numeral number six. Um, and uh, and I, think I, um, I think I put that under the wrong head. Uh, but that's where we are, the, the need for companionship uh, falls there, but I should have it up under the fourth point. Um, Notice that in A and A prime, the porter states that the house was built by the Lord of the hill. A prime, Christian perceives that the house was built by the Lord of the hill. B, the porter asks for Christian's name. B prime, discretion asks for Christian's name. C, Christian gives a portion of his testimony. C prime, Christian gives a portion of his testimony. D, the porter speaks of, quote, the rules of the house, D prime, the porter speaks of the law of the house, and then what is in E, notice, discretion appears who is both grave and beautiful. There are a number of important points we could draw from this chiasm. However, notice the statements which enclose the chiasm. The statement regarding the Lord's house is as interesting as it is important Notice that when Christian echoed the porter's words about the Lord of the hill, A and A prime, water stood in the eyes of discretion. Why? Why did that statement cause her to tear up with obvious joy? Well, think about the meaning of the name discretion. The word means to perceive or to distinguish. And so it seems that Bunyan is telling us something wonderful. When a believer meets other believers, there is reciprocal recognition. Christian perceives what the house is and discretion perceives what Christian is. And that discretion is nurtured by good leadership under pastors. Uh, Fifth, the need for Christian companionship. Before uh, dinner, some from the house gathered to speak to Christian, not to decide if he were in fact what he claimed to be for 
that had already been determined, but for the improvement of the time. Thus, the reader is introduced to three ladies whose names are piety, prudence, and charity. For Bunyan, these ideas pierce the heart of what is important in the Christian life. Here we find a discussion about a break with the past, wisdom for the future, and a love for all in the present moment. This notion of past, present, and future is an important perspective for any pilgrim traveling the narrow way. And key for Bunyan is that the pilgrim gains this perspective in the house called Beautiful or the local church. The first conversation is between piety and Christian. Piety is from the Latin word pietatum, meaning dutiful behavior or getting to the heart of the matter, a sense of loyalty. Thus, piety asks questions like, what moved you at first to betake yourself to the pilgrim's life? And, quote, but how did it happen that you came out of your country this way? You see, she is asking about his departure from the city of destruction in light of his present pursuit of the celestial city. She is anxious to hear about his past and especially his breach with all that is lacking in true piety. The second conversation that Christian has is with prudence. The Latin prudentia can mean foreseeing or foresight. Bunyan is not suggesting that prudence is a prophetess, no, but he is telling us that the gospel, that gospel wisdom has a way of seeing ahead of the present moment, seeing beyond the present moment, thus the future in view, and so prudence asks Christian, quote, what is it that makes you so desirous to go to Mount Zion? She's asking Christian about the way forward. The third and final conversation is between Christian and charity, and of course, charity is the highest expression of Christian love in the present moment. It is the gift of a cold cup of water, which is always accompanied by the gospel. Charity inquires as to Christian's family. Why are they not with him? Did he not seek to persuade them to come? And thus, we should expect the question asked by charity, though it feels even to us like a knife in the heart. Quote, but did you not with your vain life damp all that you might by words used by way of persuasion to bring them away with you? In other words, didn't you extinguish with your very life all that you said with your mouth? She reminds Christian and the reader that our love must be more than words. Some professing believers seem preoccupied with their past lives. Some revel in the past. Still others have such an eye to the future that they give no heed to present ministry opportunities that surround them. Bunyan reminds us that while we have a past and look forward to a future life, we must live lively in the present. Each and every moment is an opportunity to be charitable. To put it differently, we must demonstrate a Christ-like love to all we encounter, especially those who are of the house. However, the greatest lesson of all is that the believer needs Christian fellowship, and that need becomes all too apparent once Christian leaves the house called Beautiful. Upon leaving the house, Christian descends into the two valleys. The first is the Valley of Humiliation, wherein he encountered Apollyon. Now, the reader expects to witness a fight of the most brutal sort, and that's exactly what we see. The reader gets that very thing. 
it was such that, quote, no man can imagine, end quote. That was the kind of battle. But the portrayal of the battle is relatively short in comparison to the whole encounter. Thus, the reader cannot help but think that the battle is really the culmination of the true point of comparison, which is the conversation that takes place between Apollyon and Christian. Have you noticed that the dialogue between Christian and Apollyon makes up the bulk of the meeting? They're talking, and their dialogue was full of snares for Christian. But having escaped the first valley and the, ba and, and the battle with Apollyon, Christian entered the second valley, the valley of the shadow of death. And here the challenge was quite different from the first valley. Here there was no one to talk to, not even Apollyon. In fact, he was alone and confounded. Bunyan writes this, quote, Christian was so confounded that he did not know his own voice, quote, end quote, which proved to be a problem. Thus, while in the infernal valley, quote, one of the wicked ones got behind him and whisperingly suggested many grievous blasphemies to him, which he thought proceeded from his own mind, end quote. He did not have the discretion to stop his ears from listening. In other words, his mind would not stop. It was a terrible cycle from which he could not escape. So you see how the first valley has him talking to Apollyon. The second valley has him not even being able to discern his own voice. The lesson is pressed home for us. We must have Christian fellowship. However, in our sinfulness, we will always, always be apt to destroy the blessing of it. Do you remember that while in the second valley, Christian heard the voice of faithful and he was so overjoyed that he could barely wait to see the man who he heard reciting Psalm 23? Emerging from the valley, the land ascends that pilgrims might see ahead. And that's when Christian spied the man to whom the voice belonged. And he called out, Ho, stay and I will be your companion. But the man was fleeing something he described as the avenger of blood, and he would not wait. It was then that Christian summoned his strength, and this is the sad part, and not only caught up to the man, but passed him. Why would he pass him, right? He's looking for fellowship. We always have that tendency to destroy what we long for. However, when he passed him, he, vain, he vaingloriously smiled quote, because he had gotten the start on his brother, end quote. And then he suddenly stumbled and fell. Bunyan is handing us two lessons. Christian communion requires our best effort, and it's worth every ounce of energy that we can invest in it. Second, our best effort begins with putting our brother before even our fears, now that requires more than a love for neighbor. It requires me to have my eyes set fully on Jesus Christ and he will provide me with the resources I need for Christian fellowship and yes, what I need for the whole Christian life. May I pray with you? Father, thank you so much for the blessing of Christ and servants of Christ who so faithfully set down lessons like these that we might learn, that we might cherish, that we might apply. So Lord, teach us where Bunyan is right. 
instruct our hearts and our minds and our hands and our feet and cause us to not only love you in the Lord Jesus Christ, but by your spirit, by, by the spirit of Christ in us, cause us to love one another. For we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you so much. That was wonderful. Appreciate it. Well, I've been rebuked in my own pulpit because I had always taught that Christian got saved at the wicked gate. <laughs> I stand corrected now. Though we didn't resolve the slough versus slough controversy yet, did we? Dr. Whitlow, what would you say? You're from across the pond. Well, give us the authoritative... What it? Uh, <laughs> it's not slug. We know that for sure. All right. Well, listen, uh, if you have not read Pilgrim's Progress, it is a delightful, delightful book. You will be so edified by the reading of it. Um, I, my wife and I, we have gone through now two years of having a home group in our house where we teach through Pro Pilgrim's Progress. For pastors, you'll find a number of sermon illustrations. Uh, for those reading it devotionally, you'll find yourself challenged, and it is, it is truly a great and wonderful book. So thank you, Dr. Stuyvesant, very much for that very learned and wonderful uh, lesson for us tonight. Um, tomorrow, we're going to come back. Hi, everybody. My name is Rob, and I am a deacon at Gospel Fellowship PCA. I'm also the sound engineer, the camera guy, and the podcast manager. Thank you so much for listening to today's message. Please come visit us in person. Gospel Fellowship is a Bible-believing church just north of Pittsburgh, and you can find us at gospelfellowshippca.org. See you next time.